Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, joined as always by my faithful co-host, Mr. Adam Shear. How's it going, Adam? Wonderful, Jerry. Great to see you again. Hope all is going well with you this deep in our CFP exam cycle. Oh, yeah. Uh, but we have a, a pretty special episode planned for this week, Adam. We, uh, we're, we're keeping the guest train rolling. We got an awesome guest uh, this week that I'm really excited to get a good conversation going with. Mr. Daniel Kopp. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing well. I'm so glad to be here and uh, have a very interesting conversation planned. I'm excited about it. Yeah, definitely. So for our listeners who uh, who don't know you, you are a Boston-based uh, independent advisor and you have some pretty interesting kind of a uh, niche focuses uh, that you kind of built your business around that I think really warrants uh, talking about because it's uh, some you know pretty important uh, topics and I just feel it would uh, be a really great conversation to to bring to our listeners. Yeah, there's some certainly aspects of financial planning that apply, whether <clears throat> leveraging my CFP experience with some of my niche expertise, if you will, with active duty military and uh, young widows, but. A lot of other things that integrate in that. I'm sure we'll get into that today. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, you know, you have, you know, a lot of great experience, but let's just kind of talk about you to kind of color the background for our listeners. Um, you know, you, you started off in the Air Force. That's right. Yes. So how, how many years did you uh, did you spend in the Air Force? Just under nine. Um, I went straight into the Air Force as an officer right after undergrad at Purdue. I was an economics major and then ROTC. So I commissioned as soon as I graduated, had a nice guaranteed job, which looking back in hindsight was fortuitous in 2009. So I yep. stayed until early 2018 and got out. Um, always loved personal finance along the way. It didn't know that it was a career, at least in this way. Um, so kind of found my way by accident through a variety of sources. In 2015, found out about the CFP, found out about real like comprehensive kind of financial planning and started my journey there far as like your transition out of the military uh did you want to share with our listeners kind of the the situation in, involving that and yeah there's certainly a personal element to this story that's inextricably linked um i was married to my wife sarah and we were enjoying the many of the aspects of the air force life but she also had some pretty serious health challenges that grew along the way so by the time about 2016 2017 time frame i had originally been planning on staying in the military for a career, which for most people is at least 20 years. And then you will talk about that with the planning aspect. You get a pension after that and things like mm -hmm. that. But right about that seven, eight year point, I was becoming more and more of a, a full-time caregiver to Sarah as her health kind of failed. So I realized that in active duty life was going to be kind of incompatible with the needs of my family at that time. So I had been interested. I'd even started the CFP coursework in 2016 uh, planning just to use that. I was also a volunteer financial counselor. I did like the Vita tax prep program for a couple of years. Like I loved helping people with their money. Uh, I taught like financial peace university, that kind of stuff. I just didn't know there was a career. So I started doing a lot more research, doing the thousand cups of coffee kind of idea, talking to lots of people. And I realized that, oh, maybe I could, could do this sooner, get out and become a financial planner and have some better options on the home front. Uh, Sarah's health progressed though. And ultimately in the summer of 2017, we came home to hospice and she died in August of 2017. So obviously this was a extremely impactful event personally, professionally yeah. um, going through that grief journey. I still ended up getting out in 28, early 2018 that had been the current plan and just need that time to rest, to grieve, to reflect, to think. 
and uh, took some time off with the sabbatical. And out of that journey, though, was born this idea to have purpose through the pain um, and the ability to take what I'd learned personally and, and professionally and now go help others, often in similar circumstances of widowhood. Yeah, I, I I can't even imagine, but I I do think that is a great lesson, great message to take from that is giving the purpose uh, through the pain, uh, and that's kind of the the origin of of your firm, uh, you know, wise stewardship. Yeah, so I had originally looked around and I was exploring opportunities to join a firm. Um, this was pre-COVID, so not a lot of virtual opportunities. And at the time, I had <clears throat> some specific goals about where I wanted to live, and ultimately, I decided after turning down a few options, one in California and one in DC that maybe I'll just try this out. Right. Mm -hmm. Not, not in the sense of not having the competency. I had finished the CFP coursework at that time, ready to go financial planning wise, years of experience. And I knew if I worked with military that I would have deep expertise in that side of the benefits. But I was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? One of my career coaches was like, (laughs) well, you could be two or three years down the line and it is not working, but then you have two years of experience and people will want to hire you and maybe you'll have some cool clients that will go with it. So sure enough, not only has that been the case, um, the firm took off and it's done really, really well, but I get unsolicited job offers regularly now. It's so funny. (laughs) Like uh, We were just talking about that earlier, Adam and I have like this idea of that career transition can often be challenged, but once you get those years of experience, um, man, it's like you're like gold to some people. Yeah. Especially, you know, having the the double whammy of both the CFP and being an independent uh, advisor, having that experience. Uh, you know, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago with uh, one of our former students, uh, Jeff Sussman, and, you know, he's saying how he has to beat the recruiters back with a bat because, uh, you know, he's just getting all these uh, unsolicited job offers because, you know, those recruiters are hungry for that experience and hungry for that CFP designation. Yeah, that's my experience as well. Yeah, so that that's great. Well, um, yeah, definitely a, a very impactful journey that you've been on. And I think uh, our listeners can really get some some great lessons from you. So I just kind of wanted to dive in. Uh, with some some topics to kind of talk about your firsthand experiences and really where I kind of wanted to start off what I, I was really interested in is uh, kind of the military counseling because we have noticed that uh, it is a uh, you know a trend in the industry of you know very specific financial advising you know choosing mm-hmm. a subset of clients and focusing on that clients and you know, really uh, helping them with their very specific needs. You know, I've had students who were financial advisors focusing on dentists, financial advisors who focus on police officers, uh, firefighters, you know, doctors, what have you. Uh, but you're actually the first I've I've met who focuses on military personnel. And I think that's a really important subset because also it's probably a, a huge client subset. You know, there are so many members of the armed services in the country, uh, you know, today. Yeah, there's two elements that I've found over the years that help tremendously when, so let's talk about the planning piece first. So, of course, there's the table stakes of just good core financial planning, right? Mm-hmm. Cash flow and insurance and retirement planning, estate, uh, tax, all those things, right? That the CFP coursework goes through. And then you have the nuances of the subset of those based on their income, their lifestyle, company benefits, you know, and this can apply across the range. So with military, you know, how does helping it focus on, let me give you a very good example. So when somebody reaches military retirement, so generally that 20 plus good years, right? They have a pension and now the military member is going to retire and they and their spouse, if they're married, have to make a decision. It's called the survivor benefit plan, the SPB decision. For most of them, it's the biggest financial decision that they will ever make in their entire lifetime. We're talking net present value of this pension 
one, two, three million dollars. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they have to decide how are they going to provide protection for that, where if they die, their spouse or potentially their children <clears throat> would get a portion of that for the remainder of their lifetime, right? And you can take all, you can take some, you can take none. And when I helped now, I think 43, 44 different families over the years make that specific decision, I have an extremely well-established workflow process checklist. I've built custom Google spreadsheets, um, some DOD Office of the Actuary calculators and all this stuff. And I've done it so many times and I've seen it so many times, right? It speeds up my process. I'm much more efficient and I'm way better. I can't remember the name of the firm, but there was a big box financial planning firm that used to have a client. They came to me and they said, hey, we need help with this decision. We went to our other financial advisor and they asked us, in the meeting. So how does this pension thing work? <laughs> right. So you have technical competency in the unique planning aspects yeah. of that profession. The military is very about that. And then that, so that's the technical piece, right? And you could extrapolate that across pretty much everything. Then there's the marketing side, which is I speak your language. I know your pain points. I communicate with them, right? In this world of hard, being hard to differentiate, right? I talk about things that don't apply to 99% of people, but I don't care because I only want it to apply to you, this ideal client, 1% subset. My marketing coach always talks about this. This is resonating, right? The message reaches your ideal client and they said, Daniel gets me, right? So there's technical competency that you get to do the same things over and over again, deepen your expertise. And there's the marketing piece, which is speaking to that subset who says, Daniel gets me. Yeah, because I mean, you speak the lingo, Uh, you know, I think probably the only uh, career that has more acronyms than financial advising is probably the military. (laughs) Yes, I make that joke myself. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that's great. So what are kind of some of the main uh, pain points that you mentioned? You know, like you said, uh, 20 years before most people retire, if you're entering into the military at age 18, you know, you're looking at a retirement age of 38, you know, that is well before where most people are looking to retire. So that's a long time in retirement. Um, But then also, I mean, all the other things that we know about the military, you know, the constant moving, I'm sure that is a pain point. And then also just, you know, it it is a dangerous job. You know, if if you're in a a combat position, you know, that's a very high risk uh, uh, job to have. And I'm sure that's going to have, you know, major financial decision and impact the financial decisions of uh, families that are in that situation. Yeah, fortunately, because the military does acknowledge that there are some very good benefits that exist if something happens to a member of while well, they're not to do if they have a death in the line of duty. So that SPP I talked about is paid, plus there's some VA benefits. There's SGLI. Um, one of the nuances of that, thanks to the HART Act, is so there's 500,000 of group life insurance that can be put into a Roth IRA within 12 months. You know, so there's there's a lot of unique planning aspects around like family, legacy, life insurance, all that kind of thing. Obviously, moving is a huge consideration, especially with the way the housing market is right now. For a long time, you know, everybody was everybody was a genius, right? You bought a house, it went up in value. <laughs> so now you have these situations where if you're moving every two, three, four years, how does that work? Should you rent? Should you live on base? If that's even an option, right? If you're going to buy, what's that going to look like? We have in the military world, we call them accidental landlords. <laughs> <laughs> so people move from this assignment to this assignment to this assignment and they collect houses and they yeah. don't know what to do with them. And they think, oh, I saw somebody on Instagram or TikTok do it. So it must be easy. Right. And they <laughs> become a landlord and then they don't know what they're doing. In fact, one of my inoculations against clients becoming an accidental landlord is I make them join this um, social media group 
about military landlords and they can see the parade of errors that come through every day from people talking about the horrors of not knowing what they're doing and trying it out. So uh, spouse under unemployment and underemployment, that's a huge issue. So you have income challenges. Tax planning is a huge deal when people are getting out because a lot of our compensation in the military is non-taxable. You go to join the real world, right? Not everybody's necessarily retiring in that 38, 40 right. timeframe. Yeah. Oftentimes they're going into a second career. So how do you translate that military experience in civilian? I mean, we could keep going on and on. There's so many things that make this planning aspect unique that um, Michael Kitsis talks about the crisis of differentiation, right? How do you as a generalist distinguish yourself, especially as a solo, right? Because you know more about it than anybody else on average. And that's the beauty of this. I'm not yeah. worried about being outcompeted by a big box company and this deep level of expertise. Right. And I mean, it's all about building moats, you know, and your, your moat is just your experience, uh, you know, with, with the armed forces and, uh, you know, like you said, being able to relate to people and knowing their problems firsthand and not having to ask, you know, so how does this pension thing work? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so forgive my ignorance, but are the branches that, you know, the different branches pretty much the same or does, you know, like the Coast Guard have different benefits from the Marines, from the Air Force, or is it, is it pretty interchangeable? Yeah, across the DOD um, and understanding how that all fits in is generally almost always the same. You might have some terminology differences in an office that who runs what in program. But yeah, so the basics are pretty much always the same. And across the federal employment too. So oftentimes you have people getting out of DOD military service and then crossing over to the GS, the government service side too. So being able to have work knowledge of that is really, really helpful in this space. So you, you find your, your clients are kind of a mix of the branches. It's not like you have like all Air Force clients or anything like that. <laughs> I probably have more Air Force than that because that was my network, right? Uh -huh. I initially yep. recruited clients from in the referrals. But yes, I have from across. And there's also like OSHA and um, NOAA and uh, some other related agencies as well. Hey, Daniel, uh, in terms of your um, average client demographics for the military, uh, individuals, couples that are are seeking your services. When do they commonly get in touch with you? Is it is it approaching that twenty year mark? Do some people reach out to you earlier? Um, some people yeah. after that. So I have kind of two main groups of military clients. The first would be probably what I call um, that mid career, what would dual mill, so officer to, married to officer, typically. And they've been oftentimes aggressively saving, often on a path to fire, financial independence, retire early. And they reach a level of complexity. Oftentimes the tripping point is this backdoor Roth threshold, right? They get told by their tax preparer, uh, you have to take that money out. You can't contribute anymore. And they're like, what? What's going on? That's a pain point. Or they suddenly have so much cash sitting in the bank, like we got to do something with this. Uh, Tax-free deployments, all that kind of stuff adds up. So oftentimes I'm helping the client couples early 30s, mid 30s, things like that, figure out what to do with all this money coming in. Because they may be making, you know, two fifty dollars to $400,000 a year when you add in bonuses and all the allowances with dual military. Oftentimes they're wrestling with decisions like, well, if we can't be joint spouse, right, we can't be together at the same place, maybe one of us should get out. What would that look like? How are the financial implications, the trade-offs of all these things? And then, as you mentioned, the other group is probably the group that's approaching that military retirement decision. The whole civilian world looks very scary, right? Health insurance, stock options with this job offer, SBB decisions, right? A whole new world is opening up to them. They are often a pain point for them to reach out. Is there a natural, um, just with the retirement happening so early, is this just one of those places where it naturally 
is going to employ a lot of the fire principles and strategies just in terms of, you know, what are you going to do from here to 65, right? <laughs> on the health insurance side, right? For some, but even with the military pension, um, many people in the military are not necessarily super savers, right? So <clears throat> that is a, a rare subset of, of the broader population who are reaching out to me in that sense. But yes, there's an idea of, right, what is wor optional work? Because um, they're going to want to do something. Nobody sits around, at least that I've ever found in my experience, for 40 years and does nothing, right? But now it's like, what do we want to do with spend our time where money, income is not the object, right? It might be a side benefit, but it's not the primary goal. So when I'm using my planning software, oftentimes I'll model this, what I call the next chapter, and I'll put something very, very low, you know, 10, 20, 30, $40,000 a year combined income with a couple. Mike, you could make that walking the dogs around the neighborhood for your neighbors or, you know, working part-time or just doing consulting, things like that, helping them broaden their mindset, their reframing. And that's, I think the biggest value we as advisors bring, right, is a thinking partner, right? We've got techno expertise that has to be table stakes, but help the client lay out options that's alignment with their hopes, their fears, their dreams, what's important to them, and then marry those two together over a process. I'm uh, I'm interested to see if uh, you kind of have the same experience, but I have a lot of uh, military friends and a trend I notice among all of them is that they all tend to be very into uh, collectibles as an investment vehicle. And I think it's because they have, you know, not only do they have the income coming in, like you said, a lot of it's tax-free, but especially if they're in like the Navy you know, they're stuck on a ship for months at a time. It's not like they really have anything to spend that money on in the first place. Of course, there's always the jokes, you know, getting your signing bonus and buying a Camaro. But yes, you know, I, I also find a lot of them tend to angle towards the more collectibles and, you know, building up assets uh, that they can kind of have that also sometimes retain value or, you know, gain and uh, gain in value. Yeah, oftentimes you can see this very cyclical pattern of save, spend, save, spend, especially with like deployed environments. When I was there, you know, like there's not much to spend your money on even if you could <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah like c2 or duty away from home right you're it's for a measure of forced savings and so yeah you may come back and find you have a pile of cash you drive past the barracks there's often a park parking lot full of the nicest vehicles like my my senior airmen <laughs> the, the people who work for me making way less money than me always drive way nicer cars <laughs> there's, a, there's an irony there somewhere yeah <laughs> Do you feel like you focus the the majority of your business on, on that military network? Do you feel, I mean, obviously it, it's been working out for you. Um, and I feel it. Uh, a lot of military uh, members do tend to also make their way into the financial industry as well. A lot of our former students have been military personnel. In fact, one of the individuals I'm tutoring right now for the exam, um, you know, he was in the military for, for years. And I, I feel the personality traits transition very well. And also the fact that financial advising tends to give a lot of freedom. It, it mm -hmm. It's very attractive to those who are, you know, retiring out of the military and, you know, looking for that second career, but not looking to, you know, necessarily get a, a tied down office job. Yeah. I don't have any historical data, but my sense, especially doing that kind of talking and I also host a podcast, Military to Financial Planner, where Adam was a guest, where we talk about this career transition, like how do you get into this space and things that you want to know if there's listeners in the audience that are in that kind of subset. Um, but there are a bunch of us who came together to form the Military Financial Advisors Association, MFAA, um, who are all former military or military spouse, and we make it a practice of focusing on that. 
So to answer your first question, I have about, I'd say roughly two thirds of my client base is somehow connected to the military. There's some gold star widows in there, which is the term that's often used to describe those who a spouse of somebody who has died on active duty. And then, you know, and the remaining third is in that mixture of friends, family, and widows that I specialize in serving. So I got so many more early military clients because that was my natural network early on. But of late, my growth now is more coming from the widowed side. I don't know that I would go back and do two niches again. It's a little challenging on the marketing side to go back and forth, but at least so far, it's been very rewarding to help people make that transition. Last part of the question, I think you talk about like, how does it translate? <laughs> I laugh because I hear people talk about like compliance burden on this financial advising space. I'm like, you all must have never worked for a government bureaucracy before. <laughs> like one of my jobs was an ev- as an evaluator in a training squadron. I mean, I would literally have a suitcase, like a rolling suitcase that I would take with me out to the jet um, with all the pubs that I was required to know and use to help grade my students. So it's just, it's ironic to me sitting on this side that <laughs> I don't think that there's a lot of things. So obviously there's some translation speaking government bureaucracy and just discipline and self-starter and a lot of things that translate well to this planning profession. Yeah. It's, I've only had one government job in my life. It was when I worked for the census bureau and my job was literally to take a stack of papers on the left side of my desk, look it over for mistakes sign my name and put it on the right side of my desk. And that was the entirety (laughs) of my job working for the census bureau. (laughs) Yeah. So I can only imagine the, uh, you know, the compliance issues and paperwork that you you've had to deal with over the years. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that is also a a good transition to kind of the, the other uh, niche that you focus on. And that is, that is grief counseling. And, you know, I really must commend you for that because, you know, when I was working with clients, uh, you know, dealing with widows and widowers and helping them uh, was probably the most difficult part of the job. And it's definitely the part of the job that I see a lot of advisors really shrink away from. You know, I, when I was uh, working as part of a team, would often work with the widows and widowers because the other advisors in the team just didn't want to deal with it. They weren't comfortable with it. it it's it's something that they kind of want to hold at arm's length, but you you really grab the bull by the horns and really focus on it with your practice. Yeah, it's funny because in the financial planning world, we deal with taboo subjects, one of them, of course, being money in our mm-hmm. culture, in our country, right? Our family of origin often says, we don't talk about these things, but yet in our profession, that's what all we do. So we've gotten very used to that one, at least, or at least maybe that's the people who are attracted to this, right? Don't have that inclination as much, but then you marry that with another taboo topic, which is death, right? And of course there's estate planning, which is planning for that, right? But on the other side of it, right, there's just this fear, this anxiety. And I'm I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know all the reasons behind it, but there's certainly this element of, I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing, right? I'm afraid I'm going to have them cry. I don't know what to do when people cry, right? Emotion is not my strong suit. Maybe maybe more of us are attracted to the planning freshman because of that technical expertise. And I think we could all agree on this call, right? Planning is really about marrying that science with the art of interpersonal connection and communication. Yeah. And so those are learned skills just as much as technical expertise. But we have a lot of training, certainly in the CFP program, around technical expertise, but maybe not so much around the interpersonal side, right? Communication and grief literacy and just learning how to be human. So there's there's a lot of great resources out there. Um, Amy Florian and Brene Brown and, you know, anybody who's talking about being human, right? But in my case, right, 
I'm able to speak the language of grief because that has been my own journey. And there's a certain element there that's not necessarily directly translatable, but I've had so many widowed people who I've talked to who tell me things like, I don't even have to explain this. I know you get it, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's 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 an opening there. There's an entrance. There's a safety that some people feel in this. Um, and as far as like, how do you get better at it? By practice and, and not being afraid to make mistakes. Um, you're probably going to. Like one of the things that's super easy to start with, whenever you hear about something bad, like a death or some other kind of loss that somebody experiences, changing one small word in your vocabulary. Like our cultural reflex is to say, oh, I'm so sorry. And I know everybody means well when they say that, right? As somebody who has received that dozens, hundreds of times, I know it means well. What it might be better, I found in my experience, is instead of saying, I'm so sorry, say, I'm so sad. So just replace sorry with sad, right? I'm so saddened to hear that, right? Uh, yeah. Similar motion, but different, and it's going to break through that, right? And then don't be afraid to say the name of the deceased spouse. I mean, I mentioned her name earlier, Sarah. Um, I'm now remarried. My wife, Anna, and I have a great marriage at this stage, but I love when people come and still mention Sarah's name. So for those of you dealing with a, a client who may have lost a spouse, like that pr- person probably loves when you say their name, when you talk about that person. Um, don't don't shy away from those things. Um, and I, I'll stop there, but that's kind of some big picture things that the audience could take away. Honestly, I, I think that might be the best single piece of advice I've heard from any guests on, on this podcast. I, I think that is great. I've never really thought about it that way but that that just clicks that that is that is some great way to to look at it and approach it um you know that that i really take my hat off to you well thanks i'm glad it can be a help yeah definitely um so you know a lot of estate planning um you know planning around death it unfortunately really has to be done while the individuals are alive just the legality of it and and you know things like insurance and trusts and all that, all that. But a lot of clients we find don't necessarily have that in place. The death is unexpected uh, or, you know, they just put it off. Cause like you said, they just don't want to think about it. How do you help clients that maybe don't have these plans in place? And now you're kind of doing damage control after the fact. Yeah. I mean, I could fill this podcast with hours of the stories of that things not done well and right. Mm-hmm. So sadly, I get to help see that side of it. it translates well to the other side of my practice, like telling, helping clients get motivated about the reason why we do this. It's a gift of love. So you're not dumping this mess on a grieving person when brain fog and all these other challenges are ever so prevalent. This is probably where, at least in my experience, is I'm more of a quarterback than the lead, right? So helping to be that translator for that grieving widow uh, that widowed person, right? A lot of the stuff, if it's done poorly or not at all, is going to be more in the realm of like an estate planning attorney, whether that's walking through uh, some of the probate process or the other legal issues that can come up when accounts aren't titled and things like that. So oftentimes attorneys, you know, are very busy people and and or billing hourly, higher hourly rates than mine. <laughs> or in the case of like, I'm doing comprehensive planning, that's unlimited access, right? There's not, I'm not, I'm not running an hourly meter. So even just being there, uh, helping a client like sift through their mail and like figure out what's important and what's not, what to put in the now, soon, and later buckets to use uh, Susan Bradley's term around that. Um, Financial Transition Institute, great resource around this stuff too. Um, 
being a translator and being a quarterback to who can come alongside and say, all right, we need to bring in a, an enrolled agent or a tax preparer who specializes in innocent spouse relief, you know, things like that, right? I don't need to be the expert in all the nuances of that, but having those people and bringing them in a, as part of the team and just walking with that widow through that challenging time is probably one of the bigger things that I do in those issues. A lot of it I can't fix after it's broken, right? It, yep. it is what it is. Yeah, definitely. And what are some of the kind of unexpected challenges that you you ran into that you didn't necessarily would have thought of, you know, going into it? I remember, uh, you know, when I was working with clients, we we had some crazy one-off situations with, um, you know, little old lady lives very frugally, you know, one bedroom apartment. And then when she passed away, her relatives found out she had, you know, $2 million in the bank account. And, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a great situation. Uh, where she, you know, had lots of planning, but have there any been any kind of just like really interesting situations that you've run across that you, you never thought you would have run into going into it? That's a great question, Jerry. Um, again, lots of stories that could come out of this, but two things that probably will stick away for the audience is like, there's no plan, financial plan that I deliver. Instead, what I found that works best is just breaking the plan down into a very modular process, right? Mm -hmm. We do one small little thing at a time, prioritized in triaged in order, but not dropping some giant binder of here's your financial plan. Yeah. Have fun. <laughs> right. But just breaking it down. Okay. Today we're going to do this one small thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And just recognizing that the planning process may look very different. You may have 17 things that you think are the most important and you're going to have to pick one, maybe two to help just because there's elements of grief and brain fog. As far as like surprising, strange, very interesting things, there are two tools out there um, that your audience may not be aware of. One is missingmoney.com. So it's the website that coordinates across all the states in the U.S. to help reunite people with lost funds, unclaimed property. And so you can help your clients go there and put in their names and they can look through, like find out and then the other one, of course, is the NAIC's life insurance policy locator. So, you know, oh. oftentimes records are not kept well or policies may have just gotten lost or something like that. So especially when you're helping a widow or person reorganize their financial life, historically, most of my clients can be ones who are never involved in the household finances on a big picture level, like future planning and stuff like that. So using tools like this to go out and find things that may have been lost or never discovered otherwise uh, have found my clients thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of valuable property that otherwise they didn't even know they had. So two tools that can be a help. Yeah. I can actually speak firsthand of that. When my grandfather passed away, um, you know, uh, we used find mass money. I think it's Massachusetts like version of that same website. Uh, you know, we, we found that and found out he had all the, this uh, Bank of America stock uh, at uh, computer shares that we had no idea about. And, you know, it was thanks to that service that, that we were able to locate that and, you know, get it uh, transferred over and into the probate process. Yeah. We in this profession often have the curse of knowledge, right? We forget that we know so much and that right. <laughs> even just the smallest little things about where to look for information can be incredibly valuable for clients. Definitely, definitely. Um, now, another topic that I wanted to uh, bring up was kind of a passion of yours of, you know, financial therapy. Do you want to mm -hmm. get into that a little bit and kind of explain that to our listeners? Yes. So I've referenced it several times already, but, you know, dealing with the interpersonal part of this is one of the things that's empowered me the most in this profession. 
And so as I started working with clients, especially early on, <laughs> perhaps like many of us could share, I shared the right answer. How come the client didn't do it? Like, why didn't they? I told him to go do X, Y, and Z. Or a client couple comes in and somebody wants to do one thing and somebody wants to do the other thing and you can't get them to agree. And you're like, mm, okay, well, I thought that if I just said, here's the answer, this would solve the problem, right? And then they buy a boat. Slightly tongue in cheek, of course, right? Um, anyway, that made me curious. I'm like, what's going on here? How can I help? What's the more to learn about this? So as I got deeper into my professional experience, learned that, there's this nascent kind of field, financial therapy, and I ended up going to Kansas State University and getting a master's in their uh, personal financial planning program, including their graduate certificate in financial therapy. And wow, what a journey that was. First, personally, I mean, I benefited incredibly well professionally using tools with clients, but if I did nothing else but gain the personal benefits from it, it would have been worth it. And that's the self-work um, so financial therapy is just the blending of modalities, of interventions, of techniques that have been used many cases for decades and, and a very long period of time over in the world of mental health. And we're taking those and we're just applying it to the realm of money. Uh, historically, right, mental health world did not talk about money. And historically, our world did not really talk about emotions and mental health. So it's blending those two together. So one of the things that I do is use certain modalities like narrative therapy, solution-focused financial therapy as just tools, techniques, interventions to help clients understand their own money story, what life was like, their money scripts, how they've come together as couples, as family units, how we blend that present and future goal recognition with the journey of their past that inextricably linked. It's all together. It's one you know mess, if you will, and helping clients sort that out, especially on the widowed side, right? I'm working mostly with widows who have never been the household CFO before. This is incredibly new to them in many ways. So we stacked on this wall of grief, and then we pile on some financial anxiety on top of that. And separating one from the other is often a challenge, right? I'm not a grief counselor, and I'm not a therapist. I'm not prescribing. I'm not treating. I'm not doing things that only therapists can do. But I'm taking those lessons learned and helping a widow, for example, who's working through financial anxiety, understand what's going on there. How did her money story as a growing up child play into this? What does that look like now that she's dealing with all these new financial decisions? Breaking it down, helping her work through that piece. Oftentimes, going back to that quarterback piece, right? Working together with other professionals, like a grief counselor, like a therapist, real therapist who's doing that role. And on maybe even on the other side, right? So we used to doing this with estate planners, with CPAs. So now she's doing that on the mental health side in a more integrative, holistic financial wellness. So personal benefits for sure, professional benefits. Highly encourage everybody to, to, to take a look at what you need to do, especially in your practice, based on what would make sense for the, helping your clients go deeper in those aspects. Wow. Yeah, you, definitely. Do you think, Daniel... Um, I've thought about this a while. My my wife's a psychotherapist in practice, and I've thought about all right that that intersection between the two. Do you think that there's an easier path as a technician uh, pursuing just the the strategies, the skills, those therapeutic interventions? Uh, is is that path easier, or what do you think it would look like for a clinician, a psychotherapist? picking up the technical skills on the money side. I mean, is there a right answer there? I've just thought, I've thought this is a thought experiment. Yeah. Well, I, I think the financial therapy association is attempting to help answer that question. Right. Okay. So 
that is the where mental health practitioners are coming together to learn more about money. And that's where financial planners, people in the financial services space are coming together to learn about the emotional side of it. So I think the profession is still too new. Um, I mean, 10, 15 years old at this point to answer that definitively. My experience is, yes, the interpersonal, the therapy stuff is a little bit more challenging to integrate and learn as opposed to the technical expertise, but that may be a function of my personality. Sure. And it, it makes sense because I don't have any of the figures in front of me, but you know, money tends to be one of the biggest stressors in people's lives. I think it's the majority of divorces cite conflict of money as as the impetus for the divorce. It it is stressful, and especially in this day and age with inflation through the roof, rising costs all around, it it can definitely be a clear cut, uh, you know, straight line between money problems and depression and, and all sorts of other, uh, you know, mental maladies uh, that are sourced from money. Yeah. We talk about peace of mind and comfort and things like that in this profession. And it's hard to quantify that until you've seen it right over and over again with clients. And you're like, wow, what would it look like if we truly as financial services had the ability to focus on that instead of say, you know, some of the other things our profession historically has done. What a difference that could make financial wellness for our country. So rewinding a little bit, speaking about journeys, I'm kind of interested to hear about your, your CFP journey, you know, why you decided to go for the CFP, you know, what the process was like, uh, you know, just any interesting stories that, that you want to share with people about it. <laughs> so I, there I was standing in the gym at Luke Air Force Base, randomly scrolling through podcasts. This is in 2015. And I'm trying to figure out this thing called financial advising. And I stumbled across a podcast by XY Planning Network. And I heard some guy named Michael Kitsis talking about <laughs> the CFP and he said to go get it. So that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> don't need to tell me twice here i go <laughs> I, that, that, that's the very short answer of course the idea is right how do i gain expertise as a career trainer as somebody who's not come from this world right and have somebody teaching me in the office i'd had lots of one-on-one -on -one experiences in doing financial counseling with just like budgeting and credit score management and debt analysis and like some of the basics of learning how to save but as far as technical expertise on estate planning and insurance and things like that, that was well outside of my world and was very new to me going through the CFP experience. So I knew that if I was going to do this, that that little part inside of me said that, right, the fiduciary, right? What does that mean? How do I ensure that I do what's best for my clients? I had seen the wrong side of that personally when my grandfather many, many years ago was defrauded and several hundred thousand dollars were stolen. Very, very, very sad story. And I knew that there were snake oil salesmen out there and I had wanted to be nothing, nowhere, anywhere close to that. So technical expertise, so I could fill a fiduciary responsibility and somebody who's coming into the industry with not regular experience, I wanted to make sure I knew what I was going to be talking about. So that, all those kind of combined together to really put me clearly down the path of the CFP. Wow. So you really, you know, CFP was right out of the gates. You know, you, you wanted to be a CFP first and, you know, and that was your goal to being a financial advisor. Whereas a lot of people kind of come in from the opposite standpoint where, you know, they're a financial advisor and then they decide to advance themselves with the CFP. But, you know, yeah. you really just felt like you needed that credibility right out of the gate. Yep. Both my internal imposter syndrome, but also just to have 
um, you know, reminded me of like the Hippocratic oath kind of idea yeah. of the medical profession, right? First, do no harm. How do I know I'm not doing any harm unless I know what I'm talking about? Um, so certainly that applied there. Yeah. And also, I mean, I noticed it right on your website, you know, when I was uh, doing some homework for the podcast, uh, you know, you just put like right there forefront on your on your website that, you know, you are a fiduciary and, you know, you take that very seriously. Yeah. So that was the academic part of it. Yeah. Um, ultimately, when I launched my firm, I did not yet have all the experience hours. So working with the CFP board, I was able to get credit for um I forget exactly how many it was, but a very good portion of that hours from my financial counseling experience that had been documented along the way, the VITA program, teaching, doing some of the other stuff along the way. So by the, by the time that I launched, I only had, I think, a little less than two years of experience that I still needed to get from working one-on-one. So I was not a full CFP straight out the gate. Mm. So yeah, so so starting off the RIA, you know, you weren't allowed to use the marks yet. Uh, but, you know, you were after about two years, um, you know, w- was that a huge challenge, you know, starting the RIA, you know, just fresh out of the gate without the designation to kind of lean on, you know, yes, you had the knowledge and the skill sets, but you weren't able to market that, uh, you know, did, how'd you overcome that? I can't go back and prove a counterfactual, but <laughs> cer- certainly I've noticed the benefits of that now in this space. I, I will say early on, right, I was very careful not to get past my skis. And I referred out a lot of potential clients at that time who I knew I was not a good fit for technical expertise wise. Right. But when I did start with, especially with people whose world I knew, whose language I spoke in that military space and whose problems were not exceedingly complex. Right. And then that allowed me to continue to grow. And thankfully I've been great part of incredible mentorship and support through um, XY play network, through study groups. I've had great mentors who have met with me regularly poured into me and now as a part of like the Military Financial Advisors Association, we're all working in the same space, but yet slightly different sub-niches within the military space. And so having the ability to go and ask 14 to 17 other people who are incredibly well-skilled in this, right? Hey, here's what I've seen. If you do something like this and bounce ideas off each other. So even though I may be a solo practice, I've never, ever felt alone in my ability to do the best work for clients. Excellent. Um, and you decided to kind of go right off, you know, on your own out of the gate. Uh, was there any thought about maybe shacking up with one of the big, big box firms and kind of getting your two years experience from them, you know, kind of the easy way out and then going off on your own, you know, what, what kind of led your decision in that regard? Well, at least on the personal front, I had saved up for this career transition. So the income goal was not immediate. In other words, I could make nothing from the business for a little over two years and be okay personally, because I'd had a pile of cash ready to go to help fund some of that lifestyle expenses. So that gave me freedom and flexibility to try this out. I knew there was a very specific way of planning that I wanted to do for a very specific subset of clients, the niches that we've talked about here today. And I just had strong convictions about doing both of those. And so I did explore some opportunities. Like I said, there were some places I didn't necessarily want to move. And um, I never felt like I really wanted to work with, say, an ultra high net worth segment or just help the people with bigger balance sheets get even bigger balance sheets, right? So the mission drove me kind of to do this and then validate it over a course of time with some success. So I, I was not originally opposed. I didn't even think I wanted to be an entrepreneur until I became one. But now looking back, I, I don't think there's any other way I could have done this. 
Yeah, I can I can definitely relate to that because you know earlier in my career when I was shopping around at different firms to work for, a lot of firms I would interview at would basically say it's like if a client doesn't have two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars assets under management, they're not even worth your time. Don't even talk to them. And it's like that's not really how I want to do business. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's that's not how I want to you know treat my clients. You know, as just a, a dollar value. Yeah, that's well said. I've been able to also do a lot of extra things. So in addition to my work with clients, I'm also a professor at Regent University in their CFP program. I do a lot of research and advocacy work. I do freelance. I do fintech consulting. Um, in other words, there's been so many opportunities that have kind of just like stumbled into my laps, public speaking as well, that I love doing. And because I'm my own boss, right, I get to kind of pick and choose. Clients always still come first. And that's always my first priority, but at least as far as other things, gives me that flexibility and that freedom to kind of make my own career path. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that that's great, uh, Daniel. So I guess to wrap it up, uh, is there any kind of one piece of advice you'd like to share with our listeners, whether it be with, you know, military counseling, grief counseling, you know, start setting up your own RIA, you know, if, if you could, if you could go back in time and give uh, your past self just one piece of advice, what would it be? Hmm. Well, when I think about like the CFP journey specifically, right. Studying for that test was definitely the hardest thing that I've ever done. Um, (laughs) Any kind of one-time event (laughs) made all my military training and and exams that they're pale in comparison. So thinking back, especially working with my students now and knowing that you have a very similar focus too, it's like, there's a lot that you have to cover for the exam material and kind of breaking it down into the smallest components and working your way up with a building block approach. I found what worked best for me and often with clients or students now today is finding those weakest areas, right? And dividing them up from least to worst and really focusing on that ones where you have marginal improvement. For me, estate planning was probably the exam topic that I knew the least going in. So I was able to focus most of my time there, whereas things that I'd had lots of experience with cash flow and the investment portion from my econ background, I was able to study less, spend less time there because I had enough skill and expertise. The last thing that I surprised me going into the exam was how much working with clients over the first two years of um, you know experience that I had really helped me on the exam. The case studies, being able to put myself in the eyes of that client scenario that the exam questions were asking me, Versus I felt like if I had just come at the exam with only book knowledge, I would have been completely lost on some of the questions. So having some real world context plus focusing on my weakest areas were really the biggest tricks that helped me uh, prepare for success there. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Adam, anything you want to share closing out? Oh, I think that's a fantastic place to to close out there. I mean, it brings us full circle with that whole theme of the the technical and the personal and emotional, right? And that's, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Daniel, because that's one of the tips we give our students in our program too, is even if you haven't done much of this, think of people you know. Um, if you don't know anyone that's using this strategy, make up someone, put a face and, and, a, and a place to this strategy and, and imagine what that would look like. So I really appreciate that sharing with you, sharing that with our audience. Yeah. Yeah. 
definitely some great advice. You know, you definitely gave me a lot of food for thought. I'm going to take a, uh, you know, a deep dive into uh, financial therapy after this. That sounds really interesting. So, you know, definitely thank you for sharing your experiences. It's, it's been really, uh, really interesting and uh, entertaining just kind of learning about all of this. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm so glad I could be here and I hope that this is a help to the listeners. Definitely. Uh, so that is it for this week, folks. Uh, if you are looking for more Biff Bites, make sure you go check out uh, www.biffbites.com for all our previous episodes, as well as our YouTube videos, example questions, and good luck to all of our uh, current test takers. The exam is right around the corner and you guys are marching steadily towards it. I have uh, all the faith in you that you will be successful, but best of luck anyways. Thanks, guys. Thanks.